Welcome to this podcast of Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton, founder of Climate One. Climate One brings together thought leaders from around the world to advance solutions to global warming. The Commonwealth Club is a nonprofit, nonpartisan forum open to the public. Join us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Good evening, and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. My name is Marsha Sitkowski, a member of the Environment and Natural Resources Forum here at the club and your chair for this evening's program. We also welcome our listeners on the radio and invite our audience to visit us on the Internet at www.commonwealthclub.org. And now it is my pleasure to introduce our distinguished speaker, Mr. Peter Barnes. Peter Barnes is a successful entrepreneur who has started and run several socially responsible businesses. In the 1970s, he co-founded a solar energy company in San Francisco. Most recently, he was co-founder and president of Working Assets Long Distance, now known as Credo Mobile. And his most recent book is Climate Solutions, A Citizen's Guide. Peter is also a former journalist who has written for Newsweek, The New Republic, and many other publications. He is currently a senior fellow at the Tomales Bay Institute and lives in Point Reyes Station, California. So please join me in welcoming a true champion of the environment, Mr. Peter Barnes. Thanks, Marsha, and uh, thanks to the Commonwealth Club, and thanks to all of you for coming here tonight, and especially to the people who came all the way from Sonoma County and came in a bus. Very. <laughs> so um, we all know what the problem is. We've all heard Al Gore. We've all seen the movie and read a few books, we read the newspaper. So I'm not going to talk about the problem tonight. What I am going to talk about is how to solve it. And um, we need to solve it. This is a serious problem. It endangers life on this planet as we know it, and there's not a lot of time. Um, But let me begin the talk by uh, just quickly summarizing some of the basic, what the scientists are telling us. What we used to think, the, 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 the old consensus of scientists, and the, and the, the, the consensus that is, is foremost in, in the public mind at the moment, is that we need to cut carbon dioxide emissions roughly 80% by 2050, or in about 40 years. That is what the old understanding is, that if we do that, actually what the understanding is, is that if we do that, we then have about a 50% chance of avoiding a climate catastrophe. But that seems to be the limit that people think we can do. Unfortunately, uh, the scientific consensus is now shifting uh, because what's happening on the planet is changing. Uh, You've all seen pictures of of the melting ice caps in the North Pole. Um, 
all this is happening much faster than the scientists thought it would. And the new consensus, or it's not a consensus yet, but the new information that's coming out now and has been articulated in particular by Jim Hansen, who was the chief climate scientist for NASA, is that we're in deep trouble. We have to, in order to stabilize the climate, we're going to have to get the carbon dioxide concentration of the atmosphere down below 350 parts per million. Now, that's just a number which doesn't mean much to a non-scientist. But to put it in perspective, um, the previous assumption was that if we got down to 450 parts per million, that would, be, that would give us that 50-50 chance of avoiding a catastrophe. Uh, so this is much lower than the previous uh, assumption. And what's more important uh, in terms of interpreting what it means is that it's below where we are today. Right now, the carbon dioxide concentration is about 380 parts per million, and it's creeping up continuously, relentlessly. So when scientists say we have to get down to 350, what that really means is that we're not talking about 80% emission cuts. We're talking about 100% emission cuts. We're talking about basically getting down to zero carbon emissions and then removing some of the carbon dioxide that's in the atmosphere now that we have already emitted. So that is a daunting challenge. So what does this mean in simple terms? It means that we basically have one last chance to save the planet. There is a chance. It can be saved, but if we don't do it right, that's it. There's no second shot, and there is no margin for error. We can't do these little half-baked things and think that they're going to solve the problem because they won't, and we won't have time to catch up if we don't do it right the first time. Because of this urgency, the solution, there isn't one solution, but in general, the solutions that we need have to have several important characteristics. The f and here are the five most important. First of all, transformative. In other words, there's a lot of little things we can do. Uh, we can change our light bulbs. We can ride Priuses that get 40 miles a gallon, that sort of thing. Uh, but those measures, um, while worthy, are not transformative. Transformative means we have to change everything we do in the entire economy in a relatively short period of time. Massive changes, economy-wide, short period of time, and whatever mechanisms we set up to do all this have to be capable of going all the way. They have to be able to get us down to zero and even a little beyond zero. So it's not a matter of just improving our efficiency a little bit, getting 50 miles on a gallon of gas as opposed to 30. That would be nice, but that's still burning fossil fuels. So um, 
That's what a transformative solution means. Adaptive is another important quality of any solution. And what I mean by that is things take a long time to happen in Washington, D.C., and even globally. In other words, uh, for example, in 1970s, in the 70s, we passed the first CAFE standards that made automobiles a little more efficient. Had a big loophole for SUVs. 30 years passed. Emissions keep going up. It took 30 years before Congress was able to toughen up that old law. Um, problem is, as we learn more about what is happening on the planet, the ice caps melting, um, etc., we have to be able to react really quickly. We can't wait 30 years for Congress to do whatever Congress does and come back and, and tighten things up a bit. So uh, coming up with a system that has the ability to react as we learn more, uh, the science tells us more, and we see what's happening on the planet, that's a key thing. Simplicity is also a key. If this thing is going to work and work right the first time, it can't be a, a big, complicated thing with hundreds and millions of regulations uh, that nobody understands and that companies are going to game. Uh, it has to be simple to understand, simple to enforce, simple to administer. Fair is a very important quality of whatever we do. And uh, it's a long discussion about what constitutes fair climate policy because there are many stakeholders uh, that aren't necessarily seated in this room, uh, future generations, non-human species, people in other countries that we have to uh, think about when we're designing our own policies. But the main aspect of fairness that I will focus on uh, today is fairness to all Americans, those living today within our country. Because if we set up a system which is not fair, uh, it won't have political support, it won't last. And durability is the other really important quality that any climate solution needs to have. Because um, this is whatever system we set up for dealing with uh, our greenhouse gas emissions is going to have to last for 40 years, probably forever. Uh, so uh, it, it can't be something that become, that is, is politically fragile. For example, in the 70s, as Marsha mentioned, I was in a solar business here uh, in the city, and, and there were, in those days, for those of you who may remember, there were tax credits for solar energy, which is what made solar and wind competitive with conventional energy. Then Ronald Reagan became president and eliminated the solar tax credits, and that put the solar industry out of business. Uh, and we've lost 30 years. Uh, the point is, tax credits are not a durable solution. They're a political football. Any program that depends on annual congressional appropriations is not a durable solution. So we have to keep these things in mind when we think about building something that's going to work for 40 years or really forever. Um, so, in order to think about what kind of solution would meet these five important criteria, we have to go back to the 
drawing board, the blackboard, and ask what exactly is the root of the problem that we're trying to fix. If we don't diagnose the problem correctly, it's unlikely that we're going to come up with a solution that works. So as I see it, the root of the problem, there's really two roots and two big um, problems that we have to fix if we're going to deal with climate change. One is a market failure, and I'll talk mostly about that tonight. Uh, but there's also a government failure, a political failure, which I'll say a little bit about. And the two reinforce each other, and we have to fix them both. Um, the market failure is the big thing. Um, what is a market failure? For any of you who took Economics 101, you may recall what a market failure is. It's when the prices that people pay for things don't reflect the true costs. So this is what climate change, this is the fundamental root cause of climate change is that we pay zero for polluting the atmosphere and the costs that are caused by polluting the atmosphere are huge. So the market doesn't represent those costs so we go merrily about our way. We think it's wonderful that it's so cheap to fill up our cars with gas and drive off into the sunset. But there are all these costs that are going to be incurred by future generations that are not reflected in that price. And until we fix that fundamental market failure, um, we're not going to deal with climate change. We're just going to keep on emitting carbon because it's so cheap to do so. Another piece of the market failure is that markets don't understand that sometimes there are actual physical limits. And if we think of the atmosphere as a parking lot for greenhouse gases, and we're just dumping all this stuff into that parking lot, at some point, you know, it, it could happen that the parking lot gets full and the markets wouldn't recognize that. Well, that is, in fact, what's happened. And we need to tell the market that the lot is full. We need some system for doing that. Now, there are a couple of alternative ways to approach dealing with this market failure. Um, and we should think about them before we kind of hone in on what might be the best approach. One possibility is rationing. We've done this before. We did it in World War I and World War II. And the basic uh, notion of rationing is that we put a limit on something that we have to limit use of. Uh, during World War II, it was lots of things, food, gas, rubber, etc. Um, we, the government, uh, prints up chits and gives everybody a chit that says, okay, you can buy so much of this or so much of that, and everybody gets equal shares, and uh, they can trade those chits if they want. If, if you don't want to use your quota for meat, for example, uh, maybe you're a vegetarian, um, you can sell your meat quota to somebody else. So if you, do, if you use less than your share, you can actually get some money from it. That's one aspect of rationing. Um, another possibility 
for people who don't like rationing, and I'm not going to advocate rationing at this time because I think there are uh, uh, easier ways to go. Uh, another possibility is a carbon tax. The notion here is that, okay, the price is wrong, it's too low, so one way to raise the price so it's closer to what it ought to be is for the government to come in and put on a tax. And economists really like this because it's a very clean, simple, market-based system, and it assumes that the government will know what the right price is and that because economists will tell them what the right price is and that the politicians will then listen to the economists and vote for a tax that is high enough to cause us to go down, 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 down in our use of carbon fuels, fossil fuels. The problem with a carbon tax is that it's just not politically going to fly in the United States. In order to get us down 80% or even 100%, uh, the tax is going to have to be extremely high, and our politicians are just not in the habit of voting for taxes that go up, 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 and up. Um, that's the fundamental problem with the tax. Also, it doesn't actually set a limit. Uh, it does raise the price, but when people are addicted to a substance the way we are addicted to fossil fuels, uh, as we know from the experience we've had taxing cigarettes, taxing alcohol, yeah, it discourages use to some extent, but people will pay almost anything to use a substance when they're addicted to it. So that's a problem with just taxing carbon. It doesn't physically limit the actual use. So this brings us to two other possibilities that are aimed actually at physically limiting uh, actual carbon emissions. Uh, one of the, and, and both of these approaches are colloquially referred to as caps. Um, one of these is an emissions cap. And the basic idea here is that you go around and you find the big sources of pollution, smokestacks typically, and you require all those factories or, or facilities that are uh, causing these emissions to reduce their emissions, and you monitor what they do, and you make sure that they reduce their emissions. This was done with some success uh, for some other pollutants like sulfur dioxide, which is a cause of acid rain. Um, but the difference, and this is very important, the difference between these other pollutants like sulfur and carbon are very important to understand. Most of those other pollutants, sulfur, mercury, and a few others, tend to come from just a few big source, stationary sources, like coal-burning power plants. And so if you regulate those few big stationary sources, you can, in fact, reduce emissions this way. But carbon is different from all those other pollutants. Carbon is everywhere. Uh, and it comes not just out of a few big smokestacks, but out of our tailpipes, out of our flues. It's just ubiquitous. So trying to cap carbon at the places where it's being emitted is a loser's game. It is hopeless. We will never be able to squeeze the carbon out of our economy that way. 
So here's another alternative, which is also a cap, but as opposed to being an emissions cap, it is a supply cap. Carbon is not going to get into the atmosphere if it doesn't come into our economy in the form of coal, oil, or natural gas. Uh, so if we can crank down that supply of carbon, then it's not going to get into the atmosphere. If it doesn't come in, it can't go out. So this, <clears throat> it seems to me, if we don't want to do rationing, and I don't think we should, the only way that we can guarantee that we're going to crank down carbon emissions steadily, progressively, aiming perhaps initially for 80% reductions, but being prepared to go all the way to 100 as we get more sure about the science, the only way to do that is with a supply cap. So that's, I think, has to be at the heart of any climate solution. Now, how would a supply cap work? Um, it's fairly simple, and that is a key virtue, as I said earlier, simplicity. Uh, any company that first sells fossil fuels within the U.S., and there are a relatively small number of those companies, few hundred of them, Exxon, Shell, you know the names, uh, they have to buy a permit for each ton of carbon that is in the fuel that they sell. So that's what they have to do. Uh, they all know, they all report to government agencies how much fuel they sell. So this is not a big problem uh, to determine how much fuel they're selling and the carbon content. Each year, the government reduces the number of permits, so many percent down. Every year it's four or five, six percent lower than the year before. So that reduces the amount of carbon fuel that's coming in that ultimately can be burned. And then all these companies true up at the end of a year, kind of like you do when you file your income tax. Okay, this is how many tons of carbon we brought in this year. This is how many permits we have. If you don't have enough, you pay a stiff penalty. So there's an incentive to, uh, to, to conform. Now, this system has many advantages. Uh, it's simple. You don't have to monitor emissions all over the place. It covers all parts of the economy. Uh, it's simple to administer. If you sell the permits, as, you, as we should not give them away, which has sometimes been proposed. Uh, you raise revenue, which is an important thing, which we'll come back to. And the other key point is that with this system, and the valve, I should say, that is in the graphic there is a key part of it. You've got a valve that we turn and we crank down. We could crank it down all the way to zero if we need to, and that is really important. So a supply cap is transformative, it's simple, and the question is, one question is, can it be adaptive? And that depends on who controls that valve. Now, if Congress is controlling the valve, uh, in other words, if you want to tighten the valve, you have to pass some new law, uh, that's not going to work. Uh, president might be a little able to respond uh, more quickly, but 
presidents are politicians too. And uh, the ideal entity to control this valve, in my opinion, is some independent entity that is not politically driven, that doesn't need to campaign for re-election, that doesn't need to raise money from big corporations, that doesn't need to appeal to voters who don't want to see gas prices go up to $10 a gallon. So you need an independent board, sort of like the Federal Reserve, uh, which can raise interest rates, and they don't have to run for re-election. So that's the reason that uh, we've wisely delegated uh, the power to control the cost of money to an independent board. Well, carbon is kind of like money in our economy. It's pervasive. It drives the prices of many, many other things. And politicians are very hesitant to touch those prices. So you need an independent board uh, to control that valve. And this board should be driven by science, not politics, not uh, even economics, but science. So an independent carbon fed, that's what I call it. You could call it a sky trust, <clears throat> but it's an independent board that responds to the state of the planet as we know it. Now we get to the question of fairness. And can we have a fair system that is cranking down the supply of fossil fuels? And we could, or we could not. It, it doesn't depend on the fact that we're cranking down the supply. It depends on what we do after we turn the valve. Now, in order to understand these issues of fairness, we have to understand what happens when we crank down that valve. Several good things happen, obviously. I mean, the pr we, we, we fix the market failure. We push up the price of carbon. Um, that makes clean energy competitive. We know how to make clean energy. The reason we just don't have a lot of it is that fossil fuel energy is so much cheaper than wind, solar, and, and the other uh, clean technologies. So when you raise the price of carbon, you're making these other cleaner technologies competitive, which is exactly what we want to do. Private investment will respond almost instantly to a price signal like this. Uh, investors who are now contemplating putting billions of dollars into new coal-burning power plants, when they see what the future price trajectory of coal is going to be, would not, in their right minds, put a penny into a new coal-burning power plant. Instead, they would move all that money into wind and solar and other uh, clean forms of energy. Um, and all this will create new jobs. So all these things are the good consequences of cranking down that valve and raising the price of carbon. But there is one dark side to this, uh, which is kind of the Gordian knot that we're trying to cut through here, which is that as you crank down that valve and as you drive up the price of carbon, you are hurting, we are hurting ourselves economically. Uh, we're paying $6, $8, $10 a gallon of gas, our utility bills are up, and not just our direct energy bills, but the prices of, of just about all the products in our economy that in some way require energy to be made or transported, they also go up. So economically, we all 
lose purchasing power. This is what the politicians are so afraid of, and this is what keeps us from taking the steps that we need to take. So translating that into real dollars, what does this mean? The Congressional Budget Office has done some studies to look at, uh, well, what would be the impact on uh, households of different income levels as we crank this valve down and push up the prices of carbon. And uh, what they say is that uh, the average family, when the valve is is turned down by 15%, uh, the average family will pay about $1,161 a year more and higher prices for lots of things. Now, um, why is it so much? Well, it's because of what I said earlier that Carbon is um, pervasive. Um, The typical carbon budget of the average household, unbeknownst to all of us, of course, is something like 53 tons a year. Some of it we directly burn in our cars or our heating systems in our home, but actually more of it we, we consume indirectly in the various products that we buy. So that's a lot of carbon, and when the price of all those tons starts going up, That's where the $1,161 comes from. Now, that number, $1,161, was for the average family. This this, um, graph here shows um, different income levels, and you can see that uh, rich people tend to burn more fossil fuels than poor people, but as a percentage of their incomes, Uh, it's much smaller for a wealthy family than it is for a poor family. Uh, And the middle class gets, is pretty constant. Uh, It's a big hit all the way through the middle class. Um, The point here is that a carbon cap, as we're cranking down that valve, essentially what we're doing is imposing a sales tax on necessities. And sales taxes are always regressive. Uh, so we use them sometimes, but we try not to rely on them too much. Uh, in this case, this kind of carbon sales tax will hit not just the poor, but the entire middle class. And those numbers were at 15%. But what is happening here? As we go over time and we turn that valve down more and more, this is just basic economics of supply and demand. As the stuff gets scarcer, the price goes up. Um, so it'll be a lot more than $1,161 uh, by the time we're done with this. Now, I said this is a big hit to the middle class. Uh, and I think this is a serious problem that has been insufficiently discussed, uh, particularly amongst environmentalists who kind of don't want to talk about the economics here because it will just freak everybody out. But it's really important that we talk about it. Um, So the middle class in America is in a bad way these days. And uh, before we go about making things worse for the middle class, I think it's really important to understand what is going on right now with people working longer, Uh, you know, in the 50s, 
it was usually the case that one breadwinner could uh, uh, support a family. There was affordable housing. There were public schools that you could walk to. Uh, you had doctors who didn't cost as much as they do now, and they made house calls and so forth. Um, these things are gone, and um, we, uh, we even have now you know, the additional problems of everybody losing home equity and their retirement savings are going down. So the middle class is in a bad way. This graph shows what's been going on for the last 25 years, mostly uh, thanks to Reaganomics. Um, the poor have been losing ground. The middle class have been basically holding steady. They've been gaining some income, but less than, if you look at this 25 years, the, the upper part of the middle class has been gaining income about 1% a year, which is less than the growth in the economy, less than the growth of productivity. So they've been barely holding steady. The big gains, obviously, are among the top 20% and the top 5% and the top 1%. Uh, so we have a serious problem in America of inequality. I mean, we all know this, but it's important to bear this in mind when we're talking about fairness as it applies to climate policy. Another very revealing statistic, I think, is this. The personal savings rate of American families is now negative. Uh, we are living, have been living on you know, home equity loans and credit cards, basically. Uh, we s are spending more than we are earning. So to think that in this economic environment, we're going to give another, we're going to raise the price of everything hundreds to thousands of dollars a year is, is a very challenging situation. So what do we do? We have this Gordian knot that, uh, on the one hand, we have to crank that valve down. We know what that does. It's going to drive up prices. Uh, this is going to be regressive. It's going to soak the poor. It's going to soak the middle class. Is there anything that can be done to sort of cut that Gordian knot? And the answer is yes. There is a, a, a mechanism that economists call revenue recycling. And that basically means taking the money, the, the extra money that we will be paying for carbon as the prices go up, capturing it, and giving it back to everybody. So uh, that while on the one hand we see, we're seeing the price signal, but on the other hand we're uh, getting something back that enables us to sustain at least our current living standard. So this leads to a, a fairly elegant system or solution that uh, I call cap and dividend. So on the one hand, you have this supply cap, the valve, we crank it down, we sell the permits, money come, is collected when we sell the permits. Meanwhile, prices are going up, but out of the other window, think of this whole system as kind of a bank with two windows. One window is selling permits, the other window is paying out dividends equal dividends to all Americans, one person, one share. Uh, that is a complete system, cap and dividend, which solves this market failure, fixes this market failure 
in a way that is actually fair to everyone and protects the poor and protects the middle class. Now there's a precedent for this system uh, which is in Alaska where they of course have this uh, blessing of having lots of oil uh, uh, that is just pouring money in, into their state coffers and what they have done with that natural resource revenue is to distribute it equally in dividends to every uh, man, woman, and child in Alaska. Last year, this has been going on for 25 years, last year's dividend was $1,654 per person. Family of four would get four times that. So basically, the cap and dividend model is an Alaska model applied to the whole country where the natural resource that we're talking about is not oil underground, but the carbon absorption capacity of the atmosphere. So, in a nutshell, have a descending cap on fossil fuel supplies, sell the permits, give the money back in equal dividends. And what are the consequences of this? Well, for one thing, you have built-in price protection. As you crank that valve down, as the price goes up, just as the price goes up, so do the dividends automatically. So you have built-in price protection. You also create uh, virtuous incentives at the individual level. Uh, those who burn more energy are paying more. Everybody's getting back the same. So if you conserve, you come out ahead. You get back more than you're paying in. If you drive your Hummer or heat your big home or jet all, all around all over the place, you lose. You'll be paying in more than you get back. On, it's, this is also a progressive system because the poor on average actually use less energy than the rich. So the poor will come out ahead. And the middle class will kind of break even, but individually how we fare depends on what we do. If we conserve, we come out ahead. If we don't, it's going to cost us. But that is a fair system. Um, let's quickly move ahead um, to the government failure side. And here I'll just say, because we're a little short on time, that the problem with government is that government tends to be dominated by the industries that are in the fossil fuel business. And even despite of all that we know about climate change today, this is what our government spends in subsidies, in energy subsidies today. $74 billion, not counting what we're spending defending oil supplies, presumably by fighting in Iraq, uh, but just on direct subsidies to industries. 65% uh, of our energy subsidies today are going to fossil fuels. So this is a political failure that we have to fix. Basically, we have to flip that the other way, which is going to take some political changes. Um, hopefully in this election coming up in 2008, some of those changes will start to occur. And the oil barons who now run our government will be no longer running it. Uh, there are other things that government could do, but uh, uh, we don't have time to talk about that. Uh, there's a whole political discussion about who influences government policy. The main point I would make here is that 
As things stand now, the legacy, what I call the legacy industries, the oil, automobile, electric utilities, uh, coal, they control Congress. Uh, we have to change that. And ultimately, it's up to us. It's up to citizens working through our environmental organizations, other organizations, uh, to put pressure, enormous pressure on politicians not to knuckle under to the fossil fuel industry. Um, I would say in looking around at the current uh, political scene that um, the Democratic presidential candidates uh, have taken fairly strong stands on climate. Uh, not perfect, they don't go as far as, as what I'm talking about, and so they even they need to be pushed. But I think they are pushable. So whether it's Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama, uh, uh, who becomes the next president, or even John McCain would be a huge improvement over our current president. Uh, it's, there is an opening, there's a political opening now and in 2009 uh, where we can push and put some pressure on all of our elected officials to take the kinds of actions that I'm talking about. Then there's the whole global situation, which is another complex scene which I won't go into, but the main point to bear in mind is that the U.S. has been the big problem globally. Every other country on the planet has ratified the Kyoto Protocol except us. Not that the Kyoto Protocol could solve this problem, it can't, but the U.S. has to become a leader rather than a denier on climate change. I think that will happen, and then uh, possibly with us being in the lead, we can then move the rest of the world. So thank you, and now we will take some questions. So our thanks to Peter for his comments this evening, and we are now going to be taking questions directly from the audience. So if you have a question, if you would please raise your hand, and Peter will call on you, and then we have some folks that will pass the microphone around. And if you would please speak clearly into the microphone, so again, to make sure that the recording will pick up your questions. Thank you. Hi, Peter. Thanks for your... Uh Wonderful comments. It's really impressive. And my question is uh, about price. So if you ha you're, you're selling these permits for a certain number of billions of dollars, then the, the, the people who control, who have those permits and are who are controlling the supply of c carbon fuels to the country will be in a position to raise prices perhaps quite dramatically. So how can you be confident that those price rises won't be um, outrageous? Well, um, they will raise prices. Uh, I don't think it will be, I mean, depends what you mean by outrageous. Uh, there will be competition. I mean, there, there continues to be competition in the energy industry, and I think that's what will keep the prices from being monopolistically outrageous, if that's what you're getting at. So I, I'm not too worried about that. They're going to go up, but, uh, you know, if, there's, if there is monopolistic uh, behavior on the part of these companies, obviously that has to be 
dealt with directly through antitrust enforcement. Hey, um, I agree with you. I think carbon tax is probably politically untenable, and I, I think that we will see a cap-and-trade system. And I'm afraid that our cap-and-trade system might involve giving away permits, permits as opposed to selling. And I want everyone in this room to be politically prepared to take action if that's the case. Can you talk to us about the consequences of giving away those permits as opposed to selling them? Yes, thanks. That's a really good point. Uh, cap-and-trade is a very dangerous path to go on. If we go down that path of having a cap, we have to do it really carefully. And one of the big dangers is what you just mentioned, that instead of selling these permits, we give them away free to historic polluters. This is actually proposed. It's part of the legislation that is now wending its way through Congress, the so-called Lieberman-Warner bill. What this would mean is that Prices are still going to go up, but where's that money going to go? It's going to come out of our pockets, and it's going to wind up going and staying with these energy companies who are given the free permits. They won't have to pay that money back. They just keep it. It goes straight to their bottom line as windfall profit. This is exactly what happened in Europe when they implemented a cap-and-trade system which began with free giving of permits to historical polluters. Fortunately, Europe got wise to this. I mean, it cost them a lot of money, but they realized this was a bad system, so they're now changing it, and they're starting to sell the permits. But that's absolutely right. Uh, we have to make sure that there are no giveaways. And there are, there are other things to watch out for in carbon trading as well. It's pretty complicated, but in my view, you should have a supply cap, such as I was describing, would would actually eliminate most of the pitfalls that come through carbon trading when you have an emissions-based system. Peter, you talk about um, the need for a more true cost economy, and I think we're all with you on that. Um, but uh, isn't the cap-and-trade system of Europe essentially a kind of carbon tax and you say that it's not acceptable, but why is it that you feel like it's not acceptable? I, I do read in The Economist and The Financial Times editorials that favor carbon taxes in the world of high, high finance. And the last part is, is that there are other ways to achieve a true cost by eradicating subsidies and such. And, and can you comment on that as well? Well, I completely agree about eradicating the subsidies. That was my second point about the government failure. Uh, on the carbon tax, you know, I just don't think it has the, in the U.S., it, it's one thing in Europe, you know, Europe is more tax-friendly, you might say, than the United States, I think. Uh, so I'm thinking mostly in the U.S. context. Uh, I just don't think that it will fly politically in the U.S. That's the bottom line about carbon taxes. In theory, it's appealing, and, and that's why The Economist and even people like Al Gore are promoting a carbon tax. Uh, but uh, will it get us down to zero where we have to go? I just don't think it can or will. 
This is a very, this is a very tentative question. Uh, I'm not even sure I'm framing it in my mind all that well, but I'll try to keep it brief. And that is, assuming that your program or a program similar to it is our best shot. We still have the distance to travel from the idea to the reality across to the government and its implementation. Not only is our government structured to blunt this kind of abrupt change, our educational system is on a very slippery slope and we really, in my opinion, have to convince a large body of people, even if the idea is basically simple, that the idea is viable and it needs to be pursued. I don't think that America at this point has the educational capacity to absorb this message, so I'm very worried. Do you have any thoughts on this? Well, I think there's been a lot of change in the last few years. Uh, Al Gore deserves a lot of credit for that. Uh, but the politics on climate change have really shifted. They have a, quite a ways to go. It's not just Al Gore, I should say. The, there's, been a, there's been a groundswell of, of activism that has also contributed to this shift. Step it up, if you remember that, a year or so ago. Demonstrations all over the country spawned uh, really a very exciting kind of grassroots citizens movement. Uh, there's a lot of that going on. I think this, we're in the middle of a, a shift uh, in awareness, and obviously we have, to, we have got a long ways to go, but uh, I don't, I'm not as pessimistic as, as it sounds like you are about the possibility. I'm yeah. But I'm a path. Yeah. That is a good question. And. Um, the answer is that I think, I mean, there's no one answer, but all of us have to get involved and speak out and, and, and sign up with groups like Step It Up, like the Climate Protection Campaign in California and Sonoma County. Uh, I met uh, Kelly uh, Blinn earlier uh, before the talk, who was part of a new movement that was born out of Step It Up called Project 350, which is trying to educate everybody about the new Jim Hansen notion that we have to get down to 350 parts per million. So all of this is happening now. Um, and I would you know, look around wherever we find ourselves and, and get involved with these groups and make your voices heard, because this is the only way it's going to happen. I'd like to just pause and remind our listening audience that this is a program with the Commonwealth Club of California and that you're listening to a program with Peter Barnes. Thank you. Uh, an, another question about how we get from here to where we want to go. Have you identified any forces in our country or any politicians or any uh, citizen forces that are going to make us go in this direction. Because we, it's difficult for us each to originate an action by ourselves, but yes. if we can join up with others, it's helpful. Absolutely. Well, um, if you should perchance buy my book, Climate Solutions, there's a <laughs> section in the back 
that lists a lot of organizations and websites that you can check out as a way that you can learn more and get involved. So that's what I would recommend. I ran across an article today on a website called AmericanProgressAction.org that talks about at least three major right-wing think tanks that are um, basically, they're called climate change deniers, and that's what we're up against. That is, is there anything exactly in a countervailing correct. force? Yeah, I mean, there are the deniers. Uh, they are well-funded. Uh, it's been well known that companies like Exxon have been funding these deniers. Uh, and the media gives them far more attention than they deserve because there really aren't that many of them, but they make it sound as if the science is, is divided on it, whereas the science is not divided. There's maybe 1% deniers and 99% who say this is really happening. Um, so yeah, this is a problem that we have to deal with uh, all those think tanks that are funded by the energy industry. But I think the American people are getting wise to this now. I have a follow-on question to that, um, specifically regarding subsidies. So if um, Exxon and Petroleum Fossil Fuel Associations are spending tons of money um, lobbying, why, my question is, why aren't progressive companies like Google and companies that are doing kind of the right things, mm -hmm. why aren't they pooling their money with other progressive companies who have a lot to um, benefit from? Why aren't they doing that now, or are they doing it, or can they do it, and can they match the lobbying power? And is that would, a solution? Yeah. I think it would really help if they did. I, I can't speak for Google or any of those companies. I know they're doing some things, and... Uh, uh, but you're right, we need more money uh, to offset the money on that side. And Thank you. Um, I don't know the intricacies of the green movement, so I come from this as a neophyte. What I'm trying to understand is your system. Yeah. Um, so the cap and uh, dividend solution involves the uh, petroleum uh, businesses um, solving their own problem. Is that right? Like they pay to figure out how to turn, how to get the carbon out of, or do they just? They just have to sell less each year. They sell. They less sell less, than the year and before. we sell them the permits. Right. Okay. And so now, I, what I don't understand is how this becomes um, a, a progressive tax. Is it because? Because it seems to me, rich people are still going to drive around in Hummers, yeah. and still going to chew up most of the energy. How will they come out with less money per year? I mean, if they're going to go down from oh, we're going down from a thousand to five hundred in our dividend, eh? Huh? Not much of a motivation. I don't. I'm just not understanding well, quite. Well, you know, you're right that rich people will continue to drive Hummers, but they will be paying more and more to do so. Uh, and overall, the total amount of carbon that we burn will go down. I mean, we are physically reducing the amount we burn by cranking down that cap at the top. It's not going to be a function of individual behavior. We're not trying to solve this problem by changing everybody's voluntary behavior. We're solving this problem by physically reducing the supply of carbon that enters the economy. That's the idea. Everybody will have to pay more uh, but everybody will get money back. Now, whether 
you, when you get money back, whether you use it to buy gas or whether you decide you're going to take the bus or the bike or whatever, which is hopefully what you will decide, and the fact that the price of gas is way up will help you decide to do something else, then you can use that money for something else. Um, so there's a, there's a reward for conserving here. This is a, a market-based system which creates disincentives and rewards, and it rewards good behavior, and it disincents bad behavior. That's what it is. And it guarantees that we actually reduce the emissions because we are reducing the amount of carbon that's available for us to burn. Pam? Yeah. Yes. That is a model, actually. Originally, with the broadcast uh, licenses, those were given away free. But when the cell phones came up and started to use the, the broadcast space, they were sold. They were auctioned, and, and, and money was raised when that happened. So that is a model for doing this. It's, it's not, this is all not you know, an unprecedented uh, proposal. Thanks very much, and I will stick around so we can discuss more questions afterwards. Thank you. So, so our thanks to Peter again for his comments tonight and the stimulating discussion that we've had. We want to thank our audience here as well as our radio audience. And now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California commemorating its 104th year of enlightened discussion is adjourned.